The following podcast contains explicit language. It's May 20th, 2022 from Peachfish Productions. It's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. In Japan, an entire town's stimulus funds were mistakenly assigned to one man. The Yamaguchi Prefecture resident, Sho Taguchi, then took the 46.3 million yen, $375,000, and lost it all gambling. There's a lot of blame to go around, the government for its distribution system, the man for his greed and deception, but also I lay a lot of the blame on that lady just to his right who hit on a hard 14. The dealer had a six. What are you thinking? You took his king, you idiot. I just don't understand people sometimes. I will quote from the BBC coverage. An investigation has since found that he withdrew 600,000 yen every day for almost two weeks. When authorities finally contacted him, he said he no longer had the money. Quote, I've already moved the money. It can't be returned. It cannot be undone anymore. I will not run. I will pay for my crime. Next sentence in that story. However, he has now disappeared. He's just looking to get back to even he has a system. In domestic news, sadly, the oldest of the Sound of Music's real-life Von Tropp daughters has died at the age of 93. Rosemary Von Tropp dropped the Von, so she's Rosemary Trapp, when she moved to America, but she continued to sing with her siblings in their family-owned Mountain Lodge, thus not totally ducking their image or expectations. Rosemary was not depicted in the film as she was the daughter of the union of Christopher Plummer and Julie Andrews, actually George and Maria Von Trapp. Trapp, Rosemary Trapp, was quoted as saying that they moved to America to get as far away as they could from Nazis. Oh, Rosemary, the hills are currently alive with him. According to press accounts, Trapp enjoyed the film, The Sound of Music, but noted it was not perfect, and she tired of the one question she always got. She would sigh and answer no. Don't know why they couldn't come up with something better than the note to follow so. Please remember in German, none of those words mean those things anyway. La, a note to follow so. Rosemary Trapp was 93. And finally, a man who was convicted of setting a wildfire in Big Sur that burned 125,000 acres, seriously injured a firefighter, and killed 12 endangered California condors, was sentenced to a lengthy prison term. This heinous act came with a 24-year prison sentence. Whereas California's 440 KFC owners said 12 fried birds come with biscuits and a side of gravy, all for $24.99. Just went late night comedy monologue with, with you guys today. Why not? On the show today, bear down for a bear market. That is the spiel. But first, it's time for sports. Yes, I know we don't normally just promo an upcoming sporting event. But the horse Rich Strike, I think, caught everyone's attention with his Upset win in the Kentucky Derby. By most accounts, it was the longest shot ever to win. And now he's not racing in the Preakness tomorrow. He's not hurt. He's just skipping it. Why? Well, I guess it wasn't his decision, but we will find out through Peter Fornatel. He's a longtime horse racing prognosticator, a reporter, yes, a handicapper, and host of the In the Money podcast, In the Money with Pete Fornatel. Up next.
The Dallas Mavericks stunned the Phoenix Suns in the NBA basketball playoffs. And here's the thing. You can continue watching the Mavericks. If they captured your attention, you get a chance to follow them in the next round of the playoffs. There is a sport that's not like this at all. Well, there's another big difference between, say, the NBA and horse racing, and it's that the athletes have four legs. So I wanted to talk about a sports story that captured my imagination, people I know who didn't even love horse racing. Rich Strike won the Kentucky Rich Strike won the Kentucky Derby at enormous odds, said to be 80 to 1, but we'll get into that. And he's not racing in the Preakness. Why? What's it mean for horse racing? What's it mean for this horse? Best person to talk about this in the world. It's my friend Peter Thomas Fornatel, who is the host of the In the Money Players podcast. He also does analysis for Sky Sports Racing. Pete, Peter, thank you for coming on the gist again. Well, it is my great pleasure. And Mike, I just want to thank you and the team for being back because I, as a podcast listener, felt lost in the wilderness there for a year, but feel so much better having you help me make sense of this crazy world in which we live. As I say to you about our equine friends. So who do you like in the Preakness and how many of the Derby horses that we know are competing? We've got Epicenter back, the horse who was best in the Kentucky Derby. Simplification, another runner coming back from the Derby. One of those horses that got bet much more than he should because of his name, Happy Jack. Everybody knows somebody named Jack. So this horse that should have been 100 to 1 was 20 to 1 in the Derby. He's back for more in the Preakness Stakes. Maybe the best story of all is the filly who won the Kentucky Oaks, the female's version of the race, coming to take on the boys in Baltimore on Saturday. Her name is Secret Oath. For my money, this race is all about Epicenter. I think he gets to redeem himself from his sort of tough luck second in the Derby. I think he well could go on to prove himself the best of this generation. Really cool horse. He won't be much of a price, but that's where my money is going to be on Saturday. One question I wanted to ask about the price, we said 80 to 1, but I was looking at some of the other odds and it was paying a lot more than 80 to 1 if you had Rich Strike in the right combinations with other horses that came in second and third. Why was that? It's a great observation. And part of it has to do with the fact that we have seen some long shot derby winners, very notable ones in the last 15 years or so. Nothing like 80 to 1, but we've seen some very big priced horses. And what happens is in a paramutual market where it's people betting amongst themselves, as opposed to a bookmaker making odds, a great story or a horse with a cute name or even just a big long shot will be much shorter prices than they quote unquote should be in the win market because the win market is the biggest market with 45 million or whatever was in there. Whereas in some of the other markets that you're describing, they're more formed by serious gamblers so they're sharper money. So in a bet like the exacta, Rich Strike paid like he should have been 200 to one. That's actually a lot closer to his true odds. So the smarter money was actually dumber in this case. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And that's what's so great about a sport like horse racing. You, you can do all this work. You can study the form for weeks upon weeks and do podcast after podcast as I did. And on one given day, somebody can get the best of you by picking the one with the longest tail. Of the 21 slots, the 21 horses in the Derby, where did you rank Rich Strike going in? 23rd. Uh-huh. <laughs> now, some of this was circumstantial. We didn't know the horse was going to be competing in the race until less than two days. The day and a half before the race did we learn, 36 hours, I guess that would be. 
Was he just like wandering around Lexington on the off chance that he'd be invited? He was he was on the backstretch at Churchill Downs and his trainer, Eric Reed, had basically thrown in the towel and given a concession speech. Oh, I guess we won't make it. For those who don't know, the Kentucky Derby horses earn their way into the race via a points system. But if there are late defections, that is what can allow horses who are stuck on what we call the also eligible list into the race. That's what happened to Rich Strike 36 hours before allowing them to live this improbable dream. Two days before the Derby, I had done a a giant podcast about the race, previewing it. The name Rich Strike did not come up once. Didn't come up because you didn't think he'd be in. And if you had to go down the rankings through 50 or 100 horses, would he be the 23rd? Would he be in the top 50? There were probably other horses who, if they had elected to appear, would have been ahead of him as well. I can best sum up my thoughts on Rich Strike going into the race by the one line I was able to say in any of my coverage, which was in a live stream on the day. I've never been so right and so wrong at the same time, Mike. I said, if this horse should somehow win, it will be the biggest upset in Kentucky Derby history. Yeah, and it was. How? Okay, I'm going to ask you a really simple question, but I don't think it has a simple answer. How did he run that fast? He ran that fast because in horse racing, oldest cliche you'll hear, but it is so true. Pace makes the race. Extreme pace scenarios in a race are what enable the theoretically slower athlete to run faster than the faster athlete. I think you could see this in human athletics too, a little bit tortoise and the hare style. If a much faster runner than me was running in a race and just went incredibly unsustainably fast in the first mile or two, I, at a steady pace, might be able to beat that theoretically faster runner just by going a consistent gallop and therefore able to beat the faster athlete. That's essentially, in my view, what happened in this race. And I don't say that defenders of the horse, fans of the horse are going to get upset. How can you say that he hit the wire first? He was fastest. Well, yes and no. Yes, right. I mean, and anyway, if there's ever an athlete that you can insult with without him chirping back at you at Twitter or going to, you know, the uh, or, or putting up a video on social decrying you and calling out your followers, it's Rich Strike. So is it the case then that it's not that he exhibited speed that we didn't know he had? I mean, their their time trials are all posted. So it's not like he literally in miles per hour or the amount of time it took him to run a mile and a half was better than he had ever done before. It's just the dynamics of the race favored him and allowed him to succeed, even though he hadn't, you know, set a personal record, let's say. It's a combination of things, I would say. He definitely did show more ability than what we in horse racing would say his paper suggested. And that can be due to a lot of things. This was his first time running this Far this the mile and a quarter of the Derby farther than what he'd faced. He was back on a dirt surface. He had run on a synthetic surface that could have been masking some of his natural speed. And then the other thing that people have to remember about the Kentucky Derby: these aren't older, proven athletes. This isn't the NBA. It's the NCAA tournament. These athletes can improve leaps and bounds. 
So the reason we're talking today is that the next race in the Triple Crown is tomorrow. It's uh, the Preakness. And Rich Strike won't be there. Why not? It's very controversial. I did a whole podcast on this topic, actually. (laughs) And his connections believe that it's not in the best interest of the horse to come and run back in two weeks' time. Years ago in horse racing, horses raced nearly every week. Sometimes horses would race between the two-week gap of the Derby and the Preakness. But the way horses have been trained has changed. And in the modern era, trainers typically believe that more time between starts will enable their horses to run faster. I think that's what we're seeing here with the Rich Strike connections. They believe, rightly or wrongly, and in my view, it might be wrongly, when you look at all the success that horses coming from the Derby have had in the Preakness, they think they're going to be able to do better waiting longer. And it's definitely stirred up this debate of whether the USA Triple Crown needs to be changed with more time between races. Well, the debate was, there are three things I want to talk about in that statement. One is the debate. Two is if they're wrong about it. But three, let me just ask, when was the last time a Derby winner just chose not to run, not for a medical reason, for a tactical reason, chose not to run in the Preakness? The last time that happened would have been in the 1980s. Um, a horse like Spendabuck, I think might've been the last one, 1985, they, they had a big bonus to run in a race in New Jersey and they right. couldn't do that. And the Preakness Gato del Sol, I also think, and I think right around then as well, 83, maybe he was also decided to skip the others that have missed have, like you said, been injuries country house who was awarded the race in 2019 and uh, grindstone back in 96, but they didn't have the option to run. So this is a very uncommon thing that we're seeing with what the Rich Strike Connections chose to do. And there's so much money on the line, not just for the Preakness winner. There's a bonus if you're the Derby winner and the Preakness winner. There's a potentially more lucrative race for him than any other horse in the field. It is very strange from a financial point of view what they've chosen to do. But I think at the end of the day, I just sort of throw up my hands and say, hey, they know their horse better. I don't like framing it as a safety issue, which some people are doing and saying, oh, it's too much on them. The results suggest otherwise. The results say horses actually do very well coming back quickly. And there's no evidence to suggest that it has any long-term deleterious effects in terms of their health. So, but at the same time, horses are individuals. And just because many horses do, maybe there's a particular quirk of this horse. I mean, he came from very Um, inexpensive origins, let's say. This was a horse that anybody could have purchased as the current owners did for $30,000 in a race last year. I mean, for a derby winner, that's absolutely peanuts. So maybe there's some quirk or, or physical reason why they think he needs more time. At the end of the day, I'm disappointed. I wish he were running. And as a guy who covers and markets horse racing, it's more fun when you have the derby winner coming back. And I think his chances would be stronger in my view in the Preakness than they will in three weeks time in the Belmont. But at the end of the day, it's their decision to make and they made it. Yeah. So we let's talk about the idea of or the debate about changing the length of time between the races. This was a debate that was had uh, fervently for decades because if listeners don't know, In 1978, Affirmed won the Triple Crown, and this was a year after Seattle Slough won it, and five years uh, earlier, the Great Secretariat had won it, and then there was a drought, and the drought went on, like I say, for decades, and somewhere around, there were often Kentucky Derby and Preakness winners, and then they'd failed to win the Belmont, and after this happened, oh, uh, four or five times, it 
became this fever pitch there. The the races are too close together. This is not modern racing. We're never going to get a triple crown winner. It just doesn't fit with the realities of uh, horse racing as it is in the 21st century. And then boom, American Pharaoh and Justify each win the triple crown within the last seven years. So I'm a little surprised that this argument has come back. Why is that? It's come back because it's being framed very differently. The current good iteration of the argument to stretch out the races doesn't have to do with the idea that it's too hard to win the Triple Crown. In fact, the best idea I've heard about extending the series would make it harder to win. I think the reality is that during the 37-year drought, there was a lot of bad luck. There were a lot of horses that, but for one little thing that happened in the race, could have won. You could have easily, just on randomness, had maybe three of the eight who tried during that period win. So that argument was always a little bit specious that we want to make it easier. But there is a good argument to be made about stretching it out. Now, I'm agnostic on this issue. I I really can see both sides of it. I, I get trying to keep it to what it's been for the last 50 years in the five weeks. But the good argument, in my opinion, is that by stretching it out over, say, eight weeks, having a first Saturday in May Derby, a Memorial Day weekend Preakness, and a 4th of July Belmont Stakes, you'd have more horses compete in all three races. And as a marketer, there's nothing better to market horse racing than stars and rivalries. And when you have so few horses coming back in two weeks from the Derby to the Preakness, it just makes it a little bit harder to tell those stories. And some of the great rivalries of your Uh, of horses competing in the Derby, Preakness, and Belmont. These days, the sport is not set up for it to happen. There's every reason for the winner to come back, but not so much of a reason for the horse that was narrowly beaten for second. I get the point that racing is better with a stronger series with more participants in all three legs. So that's where the argument comes from today. It's not about making it easier. If I talked to you a year before American Pharaoh won and I said, let's do a time capsule and we'll break this out in 2022. And I'll have told you two horses have won the triple crown since then. What would your initial comments or predictions have been and how do they match up to reality? I'd have immediately asked what you were drinking or on and and asked if I could get some. It just didn't seem possible. (laughs) I don't know, but Bob Baffert slipped it to me in a cocktail. So (laughs) I can't tell you what it was. That's a horse racing humor, ladies and gentlemen. He's the trainer who is known to have drugged some of his horses. But please go on. In truth, I could have the, the only thing I could have said to say, yeah, I could maybe see that is this point that I made before that during the 37 year gap, there was a lot of randomness. There were horses point given. You could argue a fleet Alex. Certainly you could argue was best in all three races. But as we noted earlier, you can be best in a horse race without winning. I think that was a case with Epicenter two weeks ago in the Kentucky Derby. This was a horse who attacked that hot pace. He was up into it and then turned away the first rival that came to him in the stretch who looked like he was going to go right by him for fun and then just was found vulnerable to get mugged on the line by the perfect setup winner, Rich Strike. We saw incidents like that where that horse would then come back and win the Preakness and the Belmont. So I could have perhaps conjured a world in which, yeah, that's possible. But uh, largely, I think I would have said it was not that stage. Peter Fornatel is the host, co-host of the In The Money Players podcast. He does analysis for Sky Sports Racing. He's been on the gist many times talking about the ancient and lauded pursuits of both horse racing and mixology. 
Peter Fornatel, thank you very much. Talk soon. the spiel. The S&P flirted with a bear market. Ah, the bear market. Yeah, so I, I think the evidence is that the market is in a bear market. We are in the middle of the bear market. We're in the second or third inning of another one of those multi-quarter bear markets. What is a bear market, you ask? News Nation has the answer. A bear market is a 20% or more fall from an index's high. There have been 12 bear markets since World War II. Nine of them lost at least 25%, the last one happening just two years ago. So, because a bear market is when an index falls 20% from its high and the S&P hit a peak on January 3rd, the level that would define a bear market in our current circumstances if the index should hit 38.37. Now, as it happened, the S&P did hit that mark, but it ended the day at 39.01. So we were in bear territory, and then we pulled back, as Ranger Smith would advise. There's only one yogi, which is good. The world isn't ready for two. So once more, S&P closed 39.01. What we do is we isolate the exact day's closing, where the market was at a high, we multiply by 0.8, we assign that number as the threshold, and we busily watch to see if a basket of 500 stocks that is collected in a float weight index, which is the most precise way to fix value, if that gets to 38.37 through these methods, and with this calculation, then and only then can we say with certainty, we get to assign the imaginary animal. If the stock market's at 39.01, well, the explanation for that is, uh, you know, P ratios and profit taking and wealth reallocation. But if it's at 38.37, call in the animal we made up as a description. It's the animal time. Put the scary animal in all the headlines because we are a sophisticated modern economy with more wealth at stake than humans of all previous generations could imagine. But you know what they could imagine? When they were smashing pieces of flint into each other so as not to starve to death, they could imagine the animal. And we now get to call it the animal. Oh, no, 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 not that animal. That animal's the good animal. That's a bull, that's the good one. Though it also will definitely hurt you if you're in its way. No, let's call it the scarier animal, like I said, because we're a sophisticated peoples. Of course, a Pisces born in the year of the rat would find this all pure folly, but an INTJ personality type would rather misalign their chakras then clearly fear the bear. Those people, of course, worship the cow. Yeah, you know, the bull, the male cattle. That happens to be the correct spirit animal for the good numbers when the good numbers are coming out of the magic boxes that the readers who know how to read the numbers in the boxes, when it makes them happy, then we call it the good animal. We're a weird, weird species. Maybe we don't even deserve all that we have. You know which member of the species I blame the bear on or almost the bear market on? I blame the doves. In monetary policy, a hawk is someone who wants less money in circulation, whereas a dove, they like loose money. I don't know if the phrase loose money is doing what the doves think it's doing. When I hear loose money, I associate it with Las Vegas and loose slots and loose craps, which I associate with loose stool. It seems that 
Even the word loose, while marginally better than bull and bear, not great. It also seems like dovish monetary policy would allow a vendor to hawk his goods, but in that case, the animals don't align with the idioms. But back to bears. You should bear in mind that a bear can bear his teeth, which like Polar, Kodiak, and Bryant are all different types of bear. Such zoolinguistical diversity. It all lays bare the bare necessities of bearing the burden of doing the bare minimum when it comes to your field guide of knowing the different types of bear. So to bear, the verb to bear, started out as to bear a child, and due to the strenuous nature of that task, it broadened out to all types of bearing, to bear a burden, meaning to carry, even to carry one's clothes upon one's body. In Russian, pregnant is bermenyana, bermenyana, something like that. But anyway, it's from the same root, to bear. And sorry if you can't bear to hear anymore, but bear with me, because I did find one fascinating bear phrase that I didn't think meant what it means. The animal bear, by the way, comes from the word brown. But I'm talking about one idiom that I thought was in the former category, like to bear down or to bear the brunt, but it wasn't. And that expression is loaded for bear. I never thought much about that expression, but I assumed it meant, what do you assume it means? Just supplied or prepared to a significant degree that you can bear any complication. I guess loaded just put in my mind that sense of the bear. No, that's not what it means. It literally means to be loaded for bear means to have enough ammunition in your gun to kill a bear. So when you're watching Mr. Pink tell Mr. White that it was a setup in Reservoir Dogs, Steve Buscemi is saying that the cops came with enough weaponry to kill a bear. Which scans? Tarantino certainly likes gunplay. And you can't imagine the boys in blue pouring enough gunpowder into their blunderbusses to fell a grizzly. I suppose all of this bear talk, well, why am I doing it? Why am I engaged? What's the psychological purpose? Yes, I'll admit it. It's a distraction from the fact that America's economy is, let us just say, lightly cratering. And the fact that they assign a mascot to those financial woes, it's pretty primitive, but also what a psychologist might ire at this assigning of the mascot. I I would say that someone trained in psychology might call that displacement from the real source of my angst. I hope you understand. I hope you haven't lost more money than you could bear or really barely even anything. And as I once said to the zookeeper at a modestly stocked panda exhibit, thank you for your forbearance. And that's it for today's show. Corey Wara is the GIST assistant producer. Joel Patterson is the GIST senior producer. Michelle Pesca is the mama bear of Peachfish Productions. The GIST is presented in collaboration with Lipson's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to advertisecast.com slash the GIST. Oomperu, jeeperu, duperu. And thanks for listening. Thank you.